0: Hello and welcome to the Arts House listening program. I'm producer Naomi Villapi. In July's Supper Club, Place and Displacement, human ecologist Asher B. Abrahams and artist Dan Coop facilitated an exploration of our overlapping relationships to place. Keynote speakers in this discussion were Wurundjeri elder Joy Murphy Wondon, urban planner Timar Ball, and natural history expert Gary Presland. Here's what they had to share.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. Uh We'd like to start tonight by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet tonight, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and future. And we'd like to particularly acknowledge the elders here tonight. uh, And we'd like to thank Auntie Joy who will welcome us shortly. We acknowledge that the sovereignty to these lands was never ceded. Welcome to tonight's supper club at Arts House. My name is Dan Coop, and together with my colleague, Asher B. Abraham. We are here to bring you the pleasure of the people that we've been talking to in the last several weeks. Um, We are going to discuss, ruminate, and maybe have some questions at the end of the night, but we'll be focusing all our discussions on the concept of place and displacement. As we began talking with the Arts House team and delving into the concepts of place and displacement, we looked at this current season that of, of events that are on here, and we quickly realise that there are many perspectives on which we can focus our discussions. Um, and just as we all entered the room with different histories tonight, and we all sit in a space where we have different vantage points, I'm sure that we all have different opinions on what place and displacement might be. So, we've got a few people here tonight who are going to help us frame our discussions. Um, We think everybody here has probably got a deep and personal sense of place. Um, And you've probably all got an interesting perspective and an interesting thing to say. So while we've got these people to open it up, we're not going to definitively leave it for them to solve everything. Uh, We're going to create a situation where you are involved in this space, you are active and you are able to add your voices to the conversation too. Um, The ideas are not going to be definitive, Uh, rather the uh, topics will overlap um, they will flow into each other and hopefully at the end of the night you'll see that they do complement each other. Uh, I'll pop up again uh, as we go through the night. Um, but for now, that's enough for me. I think I'd like to introduce you to my colleague, Ashabi Abraham, who will introduce our introductory speakers. Thanks.
2: Cool. So, first up, we've got three speakers who <coughs> will be framing, framing the concept of place <coughs> Sorry, from from three quite sort of different but uh, overlapping perspectives. Um, we've got Timma Ball, who grew up in southeastern Melbourne, but her heritage is Baladong ba- ba- La- ba- La- Nunga from Western Australia on her mother's side. Timma is a mixture of things, urban planner, writer and artist amongst others. Um, Gary Pressland... Was born in Central New South Wales, New South Wales, and has written several books on topics including Kulin history, Victorian police history, and his book *The Place for Melbourne* looks at the history of Melbourne from the from the point of view of nature. But first off, we have Auntie Joy Wandon. Auntie Joy was born on Wurundjeri land in in Hillsville and is a descendant of William Barrack and is herself a Wurundjeri elder. Auntie Joy will now welcome us to
3: country. Thank
2: you, Thank you very much.
3: Thanks very much. Um, Are we on? Yeah. Um, I'd like to begin by saying that uh, we meet on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. My father, Kim, my niece, her grandfather's traditional land. And uh, we would like to pay our respects to all ancestors, elders, communities across this great nation and neighbouring islands. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge Tema, it's been um, a short meeting with you, but um, great to have you here uh, on country and and, uh, your mum as well, and of course one and only Gary Presland who if I could write like you Gary I'd just be made, but um, you've heard about his books, Um, if you haven't read them they are very well worth a read. he tells a good story, but uh, there's so much information um, for me that it's, uh, yeah, a very intellectual and um, very worthy worthy books of, of reading, Gary. So thank you, because you're helping to tell people about Kulin Nation and this country that uh, we're, we're uh, having this session tonight. I'd like to uh, thank you for being here. I uh, certainly want to thank... Dan and Asher for the invite to be here. And um, I have been here. I'm not a newcomer to North Melbourne, never lived here, but have a great friend still today who lived in North Melbourne for many years. And we visited the um, many times the Town Hall and then um, the beginning of the Arts House. So I do feel very comfortable here. And in fact, I feel very welcome, which I think is really important. The... Um, For us, um, traditional way of having people come onto country was that there was a request by the neighbouring community. And that neighbouring community would be asked by the Wirigiri, who was our young fellow that would translate um, all the information and discussions between the two Nauranguitas, the two headmen of the communities. And this might go over months. It may well take almost a year, who knows, but it certainly went over a long period of time. And what was beyond that, of course, um, was be- what was that was all about, because there's a lot of distance to travel from community to community. There was also very much a necessity to know when that host community might be able to take another community for a visit. How long they were going tend, intending to stay, and um, yeah, to give them the law of the land. So when that agreement was reached between the two Narangitas, it was then uh, the the um, duty of the of course the host community to ensure the ceremonial area, which in itself took a period of time. And then um, what the visitors or the Yannibal would do would start their trek across country to come over on this occasion to Wurundjeri lands. During that time, there was a gathering by the women um, for all the the eucalypt and uh, so that for all the seating of men, women and children. There were the ladies who would bring um, anything that was needed for the ceremony and that might be clapping sticks, that might be possum skin rugs for elders to use if it was during um, the cold months. And, of course, there was the, uh, the dress, the traditional dress that they would wear for dancing. So, lots and lots of jobs to do. The men, of course, um, were the hunter, hunters and they would go out gathering what they could on country at that particular time of year so that they could feed the visitors. That might seem easy, but you've got to remember that Aboriginal people travelled by seasons. They didn't live in one place and they prepared themselves for each part of that travel and the seasons provided them with their very vast knowledge of what was available so there were all these necessities and uh but they came to the ceremony time there were two fires and we would call those willans one for the host narangita and one for the Allingbu, the visiting narangita and that ceremony took place as you do today, pretty much. You know, uh, there would be an exchange of words, there would be a gift, and there would be music, and there would be dancing. And most of all, there would be permission to enter country. And that permission came with the fact that they were invited onto country, they must respect country, they must respect where they are and whose country they're on. Secondly, it was about sharing the food that the host community had provided. And that was a very, 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 very big point. Um, and I've already done four, mi- five minutes, six minutes. Oh my God, I have to talk quickly. Okay, so... Um, Nevertheless, I've forgotten the third thing. Oh, <laughs> all right. The law of the land. Um, yeah, because if you broke the law of the land, then you would be speared in the leg. There was no ifs or buts, speared in the leg. And that meant that you had to leave your community. It also meant that in no matter where you travelled, because you had this injury, that everyone knew why you had that injury. And so you became exiled from everywhere. It wasn't worth it to to disre- disrespect country. I'll have to chop on really, really quickly here. <laughs> we are in um, the winter season uh, for us is called the ghouling, the awkward season. And of course, during these winter months, as as uh, as you know, it's all very much. Uh, very cold. Um, So I bought my possum skin cloak just to show you that if anyone's not seen it or would like to touch it, please feel free to do so. Um, That were made. There were anything up to 38 skins of possums that were sewn together with an animal thread, an animal sinew. Um, Then of course there was how they lived. What did they live in? In summer, of course, why not run around naked? Best thing to do. But, of course, in winter you would need to have the warmth of a fire and, and the cloak. And, so, and also the comfort of some shelter. And I've tried to put this together and I think it's going to hold. But the idea is that there would be two big um, upright... Um, Branches, and then you'd have these um, bark pieces of bark that were cut from trees, and they look—they were normally from eight to ten. Um, 10 feet wide, Um, so their purpose would not only be um, for keeping the the wind and the rain away but uh, also uh, that scarring of the tree would mean then they'd be able to have a conveyance like a a canoe for later on. Everything that Aboriginal people used uh, and used from the land was meant for use and nothing else. Everything that was taken from the land was given back. So now that I have to finish, and I was going to talk about Curran Dirk, but never mind. So with a sense um, of place and displacement, Aboriginal people um, have, have suffered that very much um, and still today, very sadly, and uh, where we come from, uh, Kim and I, it's really important about for you to know about the Corrindirk Aboriginal Station, why it was established, what happened, the success of it, and then then it was all taken away bit by bit. And those who served for this country weren't even offered a piece of land that was sold up for soldier soldier settlement. Welcome to Country Today. We share with you from these branches of leaves um, picked from our place um, in Hills. I was just saying before I went to pick up Kim, I saw this beautiful big branches, a lot of branches waving me and I jumped out of the car and and I said, I can reach that. I reached, reached it all right, but I fell in this big um, gully and I thought if anyone drives past and says, you know, do you want to help me out, please don't. That's sometimes what you've got to do. We are the manigum people and uh, it's very difficult to get the manigum leaves. Um, The manigum if you know it, has got a a beautiful white silky trunk and... uh, you have to be somewhat of a, an athlete to be able to climb that tree, but in traditional times it was about making toe holes with stone axes and then, of course, getting the branches. Sometimes nature is really good. Sharing from uh, with us this evening, um, it's about taking a leaf from this branch Um, There are branches here, please feel free to come up and take one. Um, Accepting this gift means that you are welcome to everything, from the tops of the trees to the roots of the earth. It also means that you join with us to pay your respects to the spirits of our ancestors. And we thank you, and I thank you for your intelligence. (laughs) Um, Thank you for having, uh, having us here tonight. Our language is the Woi Wurrung, Women Jakar, Wurundjeri, Balak, Yemen, Kundibik. You are most welcome to the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Ali Joy. Um, I too acknowledge the uh, that we are meeting here on the lands of the Wurundjeri, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I gave some uh, thought to what I might actually say in regard to the theme of this evening as I was um, coming over here, and it occurred to me that the, the title in that being uh, Place and Displacement, in a sense, although not in that order, describes Uh, my life because as a child uh, I spent all of my childhood until I left home and even then it continued being displaced uh, for reasons that I'm not entirely sure about. Uh, My parents chose to move every 18 months so in six years of primary schooling I went to five different schools. In four years of high school, secondary schooling, I went to three different schools. Now, because I was, as a child, I was intensely shy and very inwardly focused, difficult to believe now, I grant you. Um, I I didn't ever find, I didn't ever have a sense of place about anywhere I lived because there are so many of them. Now, when I was sixteen, I ran away to sea, which probably didn't help. Um, and I travelled for the next ten years around the world by by sea. So that only underlied underlined the whole displacement uh, theme that was running through my my life. It wasn't really until the early or the the early nineteen eighties that Uh, I came to see that a sense of place was something that comes from uh, experience, memories, uh, a greater and greater knowledge of the history of a place. And I suddenly acquired a sense of place about Melbourne. It was largely because I was doing a major archaeological survey uh, of the Melbourne metropolitan area. And I, <coughs> excuse me. and I found things in the records that most Melburnians would not know, uh, things that happened in the 19th century involving the landscape of Melbourne, about the way in which Europeans had shaped the landscape to their own ends. And it occurred to me that it would be uh, an interesting Project to try and reconstruct what Melbourne was like. And, of course, I, ha- I had lived in Melbourne by that time, probably for 10 years. I studied La Trobe University in the, in the uh, 70s and I was working for the state government. So I had some experience of Melbourne. I had a few memories, not particularly long ones, obviously, but now I had this extra layer of information that I came to see because I could I could see in my mind's eye, I could see what the area was like in, say, 1830, before Europeans settled in this place. And I still see it now uh, because I've gone on to do more research and I'm still thinking about it. Uh, so if you wanted to find out, get me into a conversation about what the landscape was like and I'll show you where where the streams were and I actually jump across Elizabeth Street, not wanting to get my feet wet uh, for the stream that used to flow down there. But of course, when I say that, of course, it, what I, all I have is uh, a sense of place about something that's no longer there. But, it, but I am an historian, so by nature I live in the past and that is my my view of Melbourne. But the other thing I realised at the same time was the the overriding influence that nature has on all human activity, and we don't think about it, uh, and we don't think about it to our cost, because every now and then we get flooded in some place, or we build a railway station across the stream bed of an old of an an ephemeral stream that floods from time to time. And so we come undone because we don't realise that nature is working on different cycles to human life, and we and they are very long cycles. Human life is very short by comparison, and so we think that we've we've created a situa- uh, uh, an environment, we've created a landscape, but it isn't a very practical one. And nature ultimately will out, and so. I could give you examples of the way in which Melbourne is shaped, uh, examples relating to the socioeconomic uh, array of Melbourne that are directly attributable to nature. So the, the underlying message I would, would convey is that uh, when we think about place, when we think about displacement, we should, we should give credit to nature as an active agent. Thank you.
0: Hi, I also want to acknowledge that we are gathered here on the Wondery land, and I want to pay respect to the elders, past, present and future, and thank Joy and Gary for their talks. And I will read some things to you. Sometimes the Red River gums rustled in the beginning of colonisation when Wawundjeri, Bunarong, Watherong, and other Kulin nations sang and danced and laughed aloud. Not too, not too long, and there are fewer Red River gums. The Yarra Yarra's tribe's blood becomes the river's wretch-rid clay. There are maybe two Red River gums, a sacred tree which overlooks the Melbourne cricket ground the survivors of genocide watch and camp out, live, breathe in various parks around Fitzroy and downtown cosmopolitan St Kilda. And some of us mob have graduated from Currie Preston, Tafe and Melbourne Uni. Red river gums are replaced by plain trees from England and still the survivors watch. Lisa Belair's poem reflects her politics her work, an inalienable connection to this place. Although she wasn't Koori, as a Goonapool woman of the Noonakool people of Minjabar, Queensland, she relocated to Melbourne and was a tireless activist, academic and artist working for Melbourne's Aboriginal communities. As Celeste Little stated, she worked almost entirely in a grassroots capacity, focused on community and the need to empower at that level. Like Lisa's poem, I also watch how the environment has changed, or quite possibly having been born into an urban landscape more English than bush, I can't fathom what the rhythm gums she talks of would have looked like. But in 2015, Rubenberg showed me this place from another view. Parliament around the corner, the Institute of Australian Architects across the road. I wonder why he edged us down Sargood Lane as the wind stung, spit like rain hitting our faces. We reached a roller door. He turned and pointed to the last sillstone wall left in the CBD. Wedged between apartment buildings, the vivid rock face revealed the ecology embedded beneath the concrete metropolis. Nature, small but still standing amidst the towering buildings, it was a reminder of what used to be here and our responsibility to protect what is left. Clustered within the grey surrounds, the discovery of the siltstone wall shifted by ship to this place. Born in Melbourne, away from my own ancestral country, the Rock exposed a side of the city grounded in its pre-colonial state. More and more, the way we perceive and live in the city is shifting, and most likely always will. Black are not the only ones displaced, although their displacement isn't always acknowledged. Gentrification and Melbourne's housing affordability crisis dominates the media, and white artists are often the first to complain. A recent article by Fiona Wright for the Sydney Review of Books left me gobsmacked. What she described mirrored what so many people experience, evicted from one share house to the next, the dream of home ownership long gone. But in 2017, she was writing as if she was the first person to feel this pain. Although a passing acknowledgement stated that the situation should be more challenging for other minority groups, she seemed generally shocked by being having to leave her home. She writes, Every time I've moved house, or more precisely, the last four times I've moved house, I've thought, perhaps this will be my last share house. Every time I've moved house, I've realised that the market, as the agents say, have moved too in the intervening time. And I've had to adjust my expectations of how much rent I'm willing to pay. Every time I've moved house, since I first moved out of home, how much difference that single word makes. It has been because of forces outside of my control. A series of escalating rent hikes, one ridiculously high, but somehow still legal rent hike, an owner moving back into his property, a defaulted mortgage, and I know it's just me who's in this leaky boat. But I love living in Newtown, not because it's near the city, but because it's in the inner west, a place that has a left-leaning and vaguely creative kind of culture, and where I usually can walk to places where I like to go. And I know that this is a privilege, and an immense one at that, to even have the choice of renting here in the first place. I know that people like me, middle class educated and overwhelmingly white, have already pushed out so many of the older working class migrant families who once lived here, and who in turn cleaned up the slums that these suburbs once were. But even still, for the entire time I've rented, I've lived in what is officially termed housing stress. While Fiona's story is grim, it fails to see the bigger picture. Australia was founded on displacement, and people have, and in many ways, always have to move to new places. Sometimes willingly, but often forced by external trends and pressures. Yet, as Tony Birch wrote in the 2002 article, Fitzroy Low Life and the Invasion of the Renovator, demographics change displacing one group as another decides they find the place desirable. And what Fiona Wright and many ignore is that this often affects Aboriginal people so much more. As Birch states, it is a clear, but again often ignored issue that working class Koori groups were more likely to be displaced by home renovators and political evangelicals than by the government bulldozers. Access to housing is a basic human right that our government must protect and bring in new initiatives, such as secure long-term renting agreements. But we also need to acknowledge our own privileges and understand that we can't all live in the desirable inner north or the burgeoning inner west. There are other people who need these places so much more benefiting from the vast array of health, legal and social services. Artists have always existed on the margins. And living on the outskirts, further away from the city centre, might be a new thing that we also need to embrace.
1: So a quick quick recap. So we've developed a sense of place. I'm sure everyone sitting in this room has some thoughts that are prompted by these discussion points. So we have an immensely long history, a social history on this land and a law. Um, We have uh, a landscape and and a a nature that influences our way that we can inhabit this land. And then we have uh, the built environment and and the social issues that come with politics and policy that change the way that we perceive our right to land. All of these things are, you know, one before the other, but also overlapping. We couldn't have one without the other. Um, So now that we've kind of made a place, made a little space for our discussion, we're actually gonna move to the other side of the coin and that is displacement. And to help us mess things up, scramble the egg, We've got nine wonderful people who, in their own way, have a personal experience of displacement or a personal perspective on displacement. And I'm going to invite Asher up here to start introducing those people who will help us to have a conversation.
2: So, first off, in the yellow corner, in the yellow area over here, we have Vicky Vakondios, who is hosting a table on homelessness. Vicky is a homelessness advocate. She's a mother and she now has secure housing. Um hosting a table on refuge, we have Bakir Khan. Bakir is a multilingual a poet and an amateur musician. He has co-founded a not-for-profit, lectures at RMIT, and once upon a time came to Australia seeking refuge. We have Jalina Sinanen. Synan- Jol- <laughs> um, also, oh, am I doing... Yeah, in the, yeah in the yellow corner, yep. Um, who is hosting a table on digital communities and displacement. Jolena is a researcher at RMIT and has written extensi- extensively on social media.
1: You may see a link between those three, three topics. But on the red corner, we have some different topics to discuss. We have Annie Racer roland hosting a table on weeds. Annie is a horticulturalist and has co-authored a book on edible and medicinal weeds in Australia. Hosting a table on animals and displacement, we have Barbara Creed. Give us a wave. Thanks, Barbara. Barbara's recent research has uh, has focused on animals and she has recently published a book called Stray, Human Animal Ethics in the Anthropocene. And hosting a table on bees and displacement is uh, Jean-Pierre Schirlink. Jean-Pierre is a professor at Melbourne University and a beekeeper. What's happening in the blue corner?
2: In the blue corner is um, hosting a table on Wordy Yuang, we have Reg Abrahams. So Reg is a Gunditjmara man and he works for the Watharong Aboriginal Cooperative, and he's also the site manager of Wordy Yuang, which is perhaps the oldest astronomical observatory in the world. Um, Hosting a table on protest, displacement and public space, we have activist, writer and researcher at Monash University, David Vicalis. And last but not least, on gentrification, we have Kate Shaw. Kate is a critical urban geographer at Melbourne University and has researched and written extensively on gentrification internationally and here in Melbourne.
1: So this is the moment where I need you to look to your shoulders and you've probably all got a little colour. So uh, all the reds, raise a hand. Excellent. Uh, All the blues, raise a hand. Excellent. And then all the yellows, raise a hand. Great. So that's where we want you to go first. Each of your colours represents your first stop. So what we now need you to do is look below your feet. If you've got a drink, please pick that up because we're going to move everything around. We don't want any glass on the floor. Pick up your belongings. Up we get. This is going to get messy. It's going to get exciting, I hope, though. So those of you in the front rows, why don't you pull your seats just in towards the the, the triangle uh, centre. Create a little bit of space. Those of you in the back rows, why don't you push them back a little bit? And then you'll see some tables appear. Now, what we want you to do is collect your table, uh, your um, seats around a table. And if you have a yellow sticker, start on a yellow table. Pick one that you like. That's 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 one that you can go and go and do. If you've got about five people on the table, that's probably enough. Um, Don't worry if you're missing out on your favourite topic, you're going to get a chance later. Yep, if you need a few more seats, I'm going to let you radically re-alter the space, turn it upside down and find the spot that you need. There's plenty of spare seats, so don't feel shy. And if you've found somewhere where you're happy to start, make sure you've got enough seats, make sure you've got a table host. So the table hosts, why don't you just introduce yourself to your table very quickly. I think most people have found a seat. You can start with Excellent. So now that you've all found yourself a seat, we've radically re-altered the space. Thanks for getting involved in that. We're going to offer you about 10 minutes to discuss, to ask questions. The real um, concept that we're doing here is discussion, not monologues. Questions, not necessarily answers. And if you uh, feel like you've uh, got something that you want to throw into the table, wait your turn, have your chance to have your say and throw it in. Your 10 minutes starts now.